Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, the investment banking correspondent, and down the line from Morgan Stanley, we have Hugh Van Steenis. Today, we'll be discussing Scotland in the wake of the no vote on independence. Then another look at the ECB, a couple of further developments there around Mario Draghi's policies for reinvigorating the Eurozone. And finally, an update on the foreign exchange trading scandal as State Street of the US is drawn into the story. First, though, to Scotland, possibly for the last time for the foreseeable future. Martin, no one will have failed to notice that Scotland voted no in the independence referendum last week. Before the vote, there was a lot of concern, scaremongering and so on from the business community about what this would mean, particularly the banks that are registered in Scotland talk about them re-domiciling south of the border. Has all of that gone away now as a risk, given the uh, given the no vote? There's certainly a huge sigh of relief among the banks in general and specifically those ones based up in Scotland that uh, the country voted nay instead of aye and there was a rally in their share prices on Friday that reflected that. There was a big risk that if the country had voted no with all the uncertainty over the currency and regulation of financial institutions, that there would have been a big outflow of money from Scotland, deposit flight, particularly companies based in Scotland, corporate deposits, um, but also retail deposits could have could have gone south of the border. The yes vote was the big <coughs> risk. The no vote obviously was status quo. But is there going to be status quo, I suppose, is the question. There are some commentators and investors who are saying, well, the risk is still out there. The banks might as well move south of the border anyway, just to kind of knock it on the head. I'm not sure that that's quite as simple as that. RBS have come out and said, no, they're definitely staying in Scotland. Standard Life, the insurer and Lloyd's, the other big bank that's based in Scotland, have been a bit more hedged. They've said it's a return to the status quo. But I think that the costs and the time-consuming nature of any move south of the border, which would probably require an act of parliament to achieve, are so great that it's not something the banks are going to do lightly. And I think there would have to be some really onerous increasing corporate taxation that resulted from Devo Max that drove them to take this costly and time-consuming move. Why do you say an act of parliament? Because presumably a bank, or like any business, can be located wherever they'd like to be. It's not as easy as that, Patrick. Uh, If a bank moves its uh, domicile, then the bank needs to write to every single one of its customers. It also needs to rewrite all of its contracts to change the location where it's based and where its license is. If it's licensed by a different authority in a different location, that all needs to be changed. And every customer has the right to object. So in order to smooth the path, 
the banks argue that they would require the government to legislate to allow that to happen. Something similar happened when Centrica spun out of British Gas. They had to write to all their customers to say this was happening, and that required an act of Parliament as well. To expedite things. Thank you, Martin, for that. We should move on to our second topic for the day. Now, last week we had the first signs of popularity for one of Mario Draghi's new policies, the targeted long-term refinancing operation, so-called TLTRO or TELTRO, as some prefer to call it, had its first auction. Uh, there was a relatively modest take-up. 83 billion euros was taken up in that first operation, which some commentators have seized upon as being proof that we're all doomed, basically, Sam. It's definitely a disappointing take-up. Uh, many econ- um, economists and analysts were expecting at least twice that uh, take-up for the first auction. I think you're right in, in a sense in the tone of your question. I mean, I don't think it's uh, it's a bit early, really, to suddenly write this whole programme off as a, a complete disaster. This is the first of six auctions of the cash, there were plenty of reasons for banks to wait until the second auction, which is in December, rather than going in this first one, one of which is the fact that we have a comprehensive review of the euro area banks' balance sheets due out at the end of October, and many of them will have wanted to await the outcome of that before then ploughing in and starting to borrow yet more money off the ECB at ultra-low rates. So there are plenty of reasons for them to wait. We do have some information about the composition of the borrowing, which is interesting. It's very much skewed to towards southern European economies, and much of northern Europe seems very much to have set out to this. We're joined by Hugh Van Steenis, the Head of Financials Research at Morgan Stanley. Hugh, thanks so much for, for joining us. What's your take on this pretty modest take-up of the first slug of targeted long-term refinancing money from the ECB? $83 billion. doesn't sound very much when Mario Draghi has talked about boosting the ECB balance sheet by a trillion euros. Yeah, well, I think there's good news and bad news. I think the good news is that the help is going to those banks who most need it and helping to subsidize the cost of lending to small businesses, in particular in Spain, Italy, and some of the other Southern European countries. And this program, whilst obviously only a first step, should help to reduce the funding costs and reduce fragmentation. But of course, the bad news is the overall sum means that the Northern European banks really didn't take it. And I think that speaks to the lack of credit demand in France, in Germany, and more broadly, the concerns that a weak economy is generating very weak lending growth. As a result, it's going to really put much more pressure on the ECB to deliver for its asset-backed purchasing program and continue to make these funding schemes as attractive as possible. Do you think there's a kind of negative effect, kind of circular effect from some of the other of the ECB's policies, I'm thinking particularly around negative deposit rates that they have. In other words, you know, banks are only going to take this money if they're certain that they can lend it out immediately. They don't want to put it on deposit at a negative rate of the ECB. And then secondly, also, we've got the looming asset quality review and stress tests from the ECB and other regulators over the next month or so. Banks presumably still a bit nervous about what the results from that exercise are going to be before they commit themselves to expanding their balance sheet. I certainly think that banks are somewhat cautious because the goalposts keep moving on a number of different of the aspects that you mentioned. I mean, I think by the end of October, the banks should have much greater clarity of how they've done in the stress tests and the asset quality review, although they must have a pretty good sense of it from having done their own calculations. And I don't think the AQR was the main reason why the banks didn't take the money. 
like you, I'm much more cautious about the impact of negative deposit rates as a disincentive for banks to both take these funds and also to lend more broadly. If you took the money from the scheme and redeposited it back with ECB, you'd be locking in a whopping great loss. But also the second order impact of negative deposit rates is that government bonds have rallied and therefore the yield you can get is really tight. So even if you took the money for two years and then gave it back to ECB, but, but took it just in case you could use it, in Germany, you'd be locking in negative six basis points on a German government bond. And so I think banks had to be absolutely crystal clear that they could lend. And that's certainly in the North, given the weak economy and weak credit demand, that just wasn't there. I'm still somewhat hopeful, looking at it as a glass half full, that the collection of all these different initiatives is starting to unblock the credit channel. And I think by the end of the year, it's going to be much clearer that it really isn't a problem with the supply side in the banks, but much more about the lack of demand. And hopefully the policy debate will then move much more vigorously on to what can Europe do to stimulate more demand in its economy. Well, one open question in that regard, obviously, is will there be QE? Will the relatively slack demand for for these kinds of targeted measures add to the impetus towards full-blown QE, do you think? desire to have a big confidence-boosting jolt to the economy is clearly there, but I think that's easier said than done. I think the ECB will want to first of all see can its credit easing program succeed in reducing fragmentation, reducing funding costs to southern European companies, and helping restore a degree of confidence. Clearly, negative deposit rates, for all the concerns I've got about the impact on the banking system, has also weakened the euro. And I'd have thought the ECB would want to actually let those different measures get seasoned before it moves on to extra measures. And as uh, Mario Draghi said in August, clearly the pressure is really much more on the governments to respond through structural forms too. So I think we're probably more in a a slightly wait-and-see mode, and let's see how all these credit-easing packages together, plus the AQR, and see how how successful they are. Well, no doubt a theme for 2015, uh, I'm sure. Back to you, Sam, for a final word on matters ECB-related. As I mentioned there, the the AQR process is very much in its final stages, uh, and the stress test and so on will get get those results within the next month or so. You wrote a big analysis with a foretaste of, of what we should expect the other day. It does feel as if, despite expectations of no massive blow-ups, there are still nervy investors around some of the institutions in Europe. Yeah, I, th- I think, well, first thing we need to say is that people really don't know at this point what the outcome is going to be. There is a lot of uncertainty out there. In the place of panic, people are kind of veering towards the view that there won't be too much trouble. I think uh, it seems unlikely that there'll be no failures at all. Uh, Mario Draghi said right up front that there had to be failures in order for this to be credible. And that was a message reinforced by Daniel Nui, who's the uh, head of the Euro Area Banking Supervisor. So I think we'll see some um, blood shed uh, at the end of October in terms of capital raising. One of the things that the ECB, I think, will try and argue, however, is that if the amount of capital being raised isn't as much as some uh, more alarmist commentators are expecting, they'll argue that's because a lot of banks have actually moved early rather than waiting for their marching orders at the end of October. There's been a lot of capital raised. Uh, I think Hughes' numbers on this are about €45 billion Euros worth of capital raised because of the uh, AQR and uh, stress test, which is happening at the end of October. Banks moving early rather than waiting uh, until afterwards. And so the ECB will try and portray that as one of the benefits of the comprehensive assessment, even if it actually happened before the announcement of the results. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly on to our final topic of the day, foreign exchange. We haven't talked about the still brewing scandal in foreign exchange trading for some time. But um, Daniel, there's new news this past week. Yeah, we had yet another trader 
being placed on leave or asked to stay out of the office, as the bank put it. State Street, one of the largest US custody banks, has placed its London-based head of foreign exchange on leave last week, Simon Pepper. And the move comes as the bank is looking into launching an internal review into its own foreign exchange trading and whether there's been any signs of any wrongdoing internally. And this revelation, does that suggest that there's kind of further advances in the overall probe from external regulators or is it just... uh chance that it should come out yeah. now. I mean, I guess in a way, it's almost an afterthought to all the internal probes that we've seen so far. So because most of the other banks are really well advanced. And from what we're hearing, most of the big banks have basically almost finished their internal investigations. And around 12 banks globally, among them the biggest in the FX market in the world, have placed on leave or fired or suspended in some cases, more than three dozen traders and salespeople so far. And and we, we don't really expect many more suspensions of firing at this stage because of what I just said, that they're mostly done with the internal investi- investigation. The next step that everybody's really watching out for is that the regulators themselves will come out with some kind of either settlement talks with some of the bigger banks, which could happen in the next few months or early next year, and also individual charges against individual traders for alleged wrongdoing. None of that has happened so far, but we're fast approaching the time when this will be happening. Okay. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Sam and Daniel here in the studio and also Hugh Van Steenis from Morgan Stanley. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.